The New Level Cap Podcast is a show about fun, friends, game design, and all things otherwise. Your hosts are Marco DeSantos and Brad Talton of Level 99 Games. I'm Chris Solis, your producer, and without further ado, please enjoy the show. Well, hello, good morning, world of Indians, and it's me, your host, DJ Triple D, here to give you the sick beats when it comes to licensing and all things level 99 game otherwise. With me is my very special co-jockey. Brad Telton. Yeah, and we're here to work along. Yeah, that's right. We're here to give you all the sick beats and the lowdown of information and knowledge when it comes to licensing and level ninety nine game stuff. Woo woo or insert other noise. I gotta say, this was this was quite the unexpected intro, Marco. Um yes, it's I'm a DJ now. Do you not know? This is um What is your DJ name again? DJ Triple D. Mm, yeah. Why why triple That's D? That's my name. <laughs> yeah, but No, no, I mean like literally that is actually my name has 3 Ds in it. Well, yeah, but it doesn't start with Yes, it does. Wait. Marco Marco Daniel, Daniel De Leon DeSantos. Oh. Okay, okay. Okay. So it's not like I just made it up, okay? Okay, okay. But but wouldn't something like Mads make more sense? Mads. Like, Marco, like M- Daniel oh. whatever DeSantos. Oh, that's all that mm. But then it makes me sound like I'm some sort of Japanese video category. So Yes. Maybe not. But Brad, regardless of my brand, let's talk more about your brand. You don't even have a DJ name. I don't. I don't have a DJ name because I don't DJ. This was one of the life paths that I gave up when I chose to become a board game designer. Uh, but okay. let me tell you, I could spin some sick beats back in the day. Oh, really? I, I can't wait. Is it like Lionel Richie songs? I don't know. That it was another it was another lifetime, Mark. Another lifetime, wow. Maybe maybe in a different universe. Ah, uh, I see, I see. There's an alternate universe Brad. So we can have a crossover between DJ Triple D and I don't know, DJ Brad D or something. And then we can just like, Brad, let's talk about crossovers and licenses. Cause I, I feel like that's Yeah, cool. yeah. Let's talk let's talk about the topic. So we're gonna talk today about uh licensing and intellectual property. Yeah. Brad. What and, is an intellectual mm-hmm. property? Aside from it being a property that is intellectual. So an intellectual property is an idea which is owned by someone. There are You'd think on the surface, ideas can't really be owned, but in fact, specific ideas can be owned. Uh, for example, like Mickey Mouse, or the text of the Harry Potter books, or um, let's see, what would we say, the World of Indians, for, to make a great example. Mm. These are all ideas. They don't have any physical existence, but they are owned and maintained by companies. And so that's what we call it an intellectual property. It's intellectual as opposed to physical. And it's a property, so it's owned by somebody. But that's not exactly what I'm talking about, Brad, right? Like, like I could come up with some whatever world inside my head that, like, I don't know, the world of the land of the tree, the tree people folk, and whatever, right? Like, and that could be a quote unquote. Tree people Tree folk. people folk. Not tree folk, not tree people, tree people folk. But the, the point <laughs> is that even if I make this entire original idea in my head, that's not exactly what we mean when we refer to an IP, right? Like, when we talk about an IP, when people say, hey, can you get this IP? Or, oh, I love this IP. They're not just talking about any original idea, right? They're talking about this 
connected universe, this world that was made, right? Like like the IP that right. is the world of Naruto or the IP that is the world of like Frozen or the IP that is Mortal Kombat or the IP that is Street Fighter, right? Like there's there's a certain yeah. implication. It's not just having this idea that somebody owns. Right. Well, and so these um, these IPs, they start with with something that is cool. Like I make something cool and I attach an IP to it and people become attached to that IP through the core product that I've created. So for World of Indians, it might be the Battlecon games or Argent. For Mortal Kombat, it's the Mortal Kombat games. For Marvel, it's the comic books. For Disney, it's the movies. Um, every company has these core products that they use in order to create and establish an IP. So you make something cool, mm-hmm. and then what? Right? Like where where does that go? A bunch of people have you know have experienced this product. They have uh, an emotional attachment to it, some kind of relationship with the IP and with the characters and the world that has been created. So where do you go from there to provide more to fans? Okay. And typically where IPs go to is to merchandisers. So um, I want to make a spinoff RPG or turn my movie into a comic book or turn my uh, board game world into a radio drama. Or maybe I want to make keychains or backpacks or lunchboxes, etc. Is this just your laundry list of stuff you want for Indians? <laughs> not not all of that, um, but some of that some of that is definitely on my laundry list for Indians okay, for sure. Br- Brad, Brad, just saying, if you do make a lunchbox, you call it the punch box, right? Wow, wow. Um, sure, I will. I'll, I will do that just for you. Thank Marco. you. Punch punch box. A eh? punch box. Yeah, you punch it and it spits the food out. How many times do you think you can do that? <laughs> Depends on your punch. It depends um, on it's a pretty resilient box. Yeah, it's but, but the point of the merchandising is to turn the brand into a lifestyle for fans. Mm-hmm. So I love, a, I love a brand. I love an IP. I want to express that. Um, I feel an emotional connection to this brand and it's part of my identity. And now I want to express that identity to the rest of the world. Or I want to dive deeper into this world. And so it, that's when merchandisers can really help. You can make, uh, because you can reach a, pro- a an audience, or you can reach your existing audience with new products, which are interesting and fun to them, and which can make you some money. And this is a great way to fund the expense of continued world building and to create more core products. Wait. Uh, so, so, so this is how every mm-hmm. IP that we think of when we say the word or the phrase IP, like this is how they all did it, right? Like we made a cool thing. It attracted people, it attracted merchandisers, which then made us more money so that we could make more cool things. Yeah, that's the basic, that's the basic loop, right? And a lot of brands are created with the sole intent of eventually building merchandise. And that's where most of the revenue for a brand comes from. So when you look at, um, let's say, so, so going back to core products, Every brand, just about most brands, have a core product that is associated with them that you would call sort of the um, the establishing product for that brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, with Disney, you have the movies, like say, like you have Frozen, and then you have the Frozen backpack, which is the merchandise. I see. The movies, all in in total, make a lot of money, but they're not going to make as much money um, as all of the toys put together, all of the toys, the backpacks, lunchboxes, etc. All that stuff with the Frozen logo and the Frozen characters, that's going to make Disney a lot more money 
than the movies. And that's truly what justifies the movies. If it weren't for the merchandising, we would not have that movie. I see. Okay, so is this a bit cynical to say that, like, IPs are not made with love, but rather revenue in mind? I don't think so at all. Um, I believe that... So, to make a product viable, right, you're going to have to pay the staff. You're going to have to... A lot of people are putting countless hours mm-hmm. into building this thing. Yeah. And you have to make it pay out. And you have to make it sustainable. So, in order to fund the creation of, you know, these great works of art, like the movies they're talking about, uh, the merchandising is is part of that. And fans like it. The companies like it. Um, it's generally just good for everyone to, um, if you have, if you have good merchandising and you have a good brand, then they each feed each other in sort of a virtuous cycle. You build the core product, fans love the product and they get involved and then they buy the merchandise, which funds the creation of future products, which fans love even more and so forth. Brad, wait, so you're telling me that creative endeavors with love and care put into them are not mutually exclusive from wanting to earn money? <gasps> shocker shocker oh absolutely not but this is one of the things that you you think about a lot when you're running an organization you're building an organization building a business that a good business uh is is self-sustaining that it um and it creates value if your business isn't uh ultimately like profitable then it can't you can't continue to sustain your work long term mm-hmm. so and even nonprofits, they make a profit they just don't like share it or not they don't uh pay any dividends to anybody there's nobody that owns the 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 company but if your nonprofit loses money or rather is not profitable it won't be around very yeah, long yeah it won't stay it won't stay so a good organization has to maintain its own momentum and that's true of any kind of organization whether it's creative or uh philanthropic or uh utilitarian or anything mm. So, uh, so we we can we can get that out of the way. There's certainly nothing wrong with merchandising. There's nothing wrong with creating a brand just for the sake of merchandising. Um, that said, that somewhere along the way there does have to be some love in it, or it won't resonate with fans. Of course, people will see it and they'll think, "Oh, it's a cool product and it's cute," but it doesn't reach me directly. Yeah, I think there's a there's a fine line, right? Like, see, say say that the creator only wants to make money. But the thing is, if you don't make anything with love into in it or love put into it, then people won't buy your thing because they won't feel connected to it. They won't feel like it's genuine. They won't feel like it's nice. Yeah, absolutely. So it's actively in your active interest to be super creative and be loving and careful and thoughtful when you do make these things. And, you know, if, if anything's to show, movies like what? The Emoji Movie are soulless and people don't buy them and they suck and it doesn't make money, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so it takes it takes a bit of both, and like I said, virtuous cycle of of great brands creating great products that that fans enjoy that can create more great products and more great. Brands. It's like a cycle, but good. Yeah, yeah, a virtuous a cycle. Virtuous. As they call ah, it. a virtuous cycle. So, Brad, how do you how do you make a good IP? Like we we've been talking about the benefits of having a great IP, or at least the 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 effects of having a great IP. But like, what if I'm Johnny Doolittle has no IP yet? How do I make one? What if I want to make the world of Marco? How do we start? So the first thing that you want to do is you want to find some funding for your core product. Um, generally, you need you need to be able to make something. And sometimes this means going for funding. Sometimes this means uh, going to, uh, to the family. 
sometimes it just means putting in a lot of sweat on your own. So for example, uh, we'll take our own example, the world of Indians, where we created our own IP. So we started that just, you know, off of what we could, what we could manage at the time. And we built a product, the board game, War of Indians, fans enjoyed it. And so we, by selling the core product, we were able to make more products. Now, once you reach a certain size and fans reach a certain level of emotional connection, uh, it makes sense to say, well, people really love this. They want to make it part of their lifestyles. How can we reach more people in or reach these same people in more ways? And at that point is when you can start courting merchandisers and say, like, here's our audience. Do you think that there's an overlap here? So in order to do that, you have to have a clearly defined audience for your brand. That makes sense. You have to understand them. You have to understand how many of them there are and what their tastes are. You know, if I made a World of Indians backpack, I don't think that would be great because I don't know that the majority of our fans are going to grade school, for example. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It'd be much better to make, say, a branded game carrier case. Oh. You know, that kind of thing. Or branded deck boxes for for our fans. Yeah. So you want to make sure that you understand really what what the fans are after as well, because you want to find good merchandise that that is going to be useful to them. That's going to bring them joy. Yeah. And uh, so you need to have a well-defined plot and characters for the world and some well-defined brand materials. These are your logos, key arts, fonts, visual motifs. If we go back to like the Frozen series, for example, you'll notice that you see the same five or six pictures uh, everywhere in all of the Frozen branded products. Pretty much. Yeah. And that's because they have these clear key arts that they're using to establish a brand. Uh, and that's what they give you when you when you choose to license with them. Yeah. Um, you definitely want to have guidelines for the character or feel of the IP. Again, going back to that backpack, um, imagine if Elsa was like angry and throwing ice at people. Um, or if uh, the characters were like about to get covered in avalanche and they were all scared. You don't want those kind of images because even though they occur in the movie... Uh, they don't really convey the feel of the property. So you have to have some branding controls to make sure that products that come out have the correct feel. Yeah. Uh, because merchandisers don't often understand your audience the way you do. This is what people refer to as the family-friendly Disney deal or something, right? Like when Disney eats something, people are often very scared of it because they feel like they'll just make it family-friendly and neutered or something, right? This was the entire drama mm-hmm. behind... Um, Disney acquiring Marvel, right? Was people were like, "Oh, is yeah. Marvel just going to turn into kid-friendly kids shows now all the time?" But a good thing that didn't happen, and most likely that's because of those branding guidelines that we're talking about, right? Like, even if somebody completely outside the circle takes you in or gets your characters or something, if you have great, well-defined guidelines, it's it's going to work. And now we have the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it, it feels way more Marvel than anything you've had in the past two decades than the previous marvel movies yeah absolutely and uh one thing i do i can say that's really positive for disney is they do keep a very tight uh emotional control a disney product feels like a disney product and even a disney product for older teens which would be the marvel universe now feels like a disney product for older teens like i know what i'm gonna get uh, when I sit down to one of those movies, I know kind of what the boundaries are. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's a really nice thing to know when you go in. It gives you a lot of confidence for that brand. And creating that kind of consistency, that that consistent feeling 
I'd say almost that nostalgia that I know when I go to see um, one of these movies in a series, that's the feeling that I'm going to have when I come hey, out. Hey, Brad. And that's what is really consistent. Hey, Brad. You know what this sounds a lot like? <laughs> What's that? Games as a platform. Yeah, uh, it definitely, definitely is, except instead of the mechanical infrastructure, we're talking a lot about the intellectual infrastructure, mm. the ideas that have, you know, that form a system and are installed in people to create these kind of feelings that people seek out. Yeah. So when I watch a movie and I feel a certain way, I want to seek out products that will make also make me feel that way that I like. And if I don't like a movie um, or a comic book or a TV show or whatever, then I won't seek out products because I don't want to feel that way. Or at least don't want to get reminded by the experience, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's where we what we, we call nostalgia. It's partly a remembrance of past experience, but it's also an anticipation of a future similar experience. Mm. And branding is and merchandising is one of the ways that we embrace that nostalgia that we love. I see. So so it's kind of like how you have preferences for things, right? And mm-hmm. and how essentially IPs are quote unquote heuristics for you to be able to just find more similar things. And this brings me all back to the start of this episode where I was a DJ. Because essentially, radio stations are in their own way IPs, right? A radio station has a feel. A radio station... Well, sure. Absolutely. And But but the big thing here is that a good radio station doesn't just play music you've already heard before, but introduces you to similar music to your tastes that you've never heard before. And that's the sign of a great but radio which station. you like because you uh, they understand your taste or that you've selected into this audience of like taste exactly and it 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 comes full circle see it was planned entirely planned you thought i was just Mm -hmm. making fun nope it was completely planned so brad um as much as i whatever brad so long as uh so long as we're done talking about this let's talk about more stuff after the break i i do want to pry your brain a little bit more about the details but i do think we all need a break you know all right Let's go to the break and do a little bit of brand building. All right. Want a game with other Level 99 Games fans, such as yourself? Join the official Discord channel. You can find the invitation link in the description below. Okay, so we're back. Oh, wow. You're back? Is Brad Street back all right? All right. Uh, okay, Brad. So now, now, now wow. let's say I'm... See, that's that's some branding because, what, like 15 years later, we're still saying it? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Longer than that. Oh, wow. my gosh. You know, the Backstreet right, Boys... let's just forget this happened. Let's just forget this happened. They were a great brand and a great band, if you know what I mean. Okay, um, Brad, let's say <laughs> that I followed this episode to the letter. Uh, in the span of this 20, 25 minutes, I have not only created an IP with well-defined characters and well-defined guidelines and world and whatever, I've also created an awesome product that sold like hotcakes. And now my brand is the new hottest thing. What now? Okay. So now that you've made it, what is the process for licensing the IP to others? You don't want to manage making all of the DJ Marco, you know, spinoff products. That's like a ton of work 
and you have to deal with licenses and you have to deal with, or not licenses, you have to deal with factories, you have to deal with markets overseas, you have to deal with the big box retailers like Walmart and Target and Barnes and Noble and Amazon. Nobody's got time for that if you're in the, the business of making great creative works. So um, you want to get in touch with merchandisers. And so the merchandisers are going to ask you. They want to know how many units that you sold or the core product. They want to know who that audience is. Um, and they want to know what kind of reach that working with you is going to bring them. Who am I going to connect to by working with your brand? And then they want to know that your fans are active and involved. For uh, example, even though, say, like Darkstalkers is a great brand, when I don't think that it's a great brand to license because there are a few hardcore fans that still remember it, and most people haven't seen it in the past you know, 15 years. Yep. So much like the Backstreet Boys, oh, wow. while everybody probably remembers them, may not be the best, uh, the best licensing opportunity because uh, there are other more relevant and more immediately relevant licensing opportunities that can be had for about So you're the same telling price. me that I can't that it's not a good idea for me to license the Backstreet Boys for my own MOBA game. Probably not. You'd probably get a few heads turned, but I don't know that people would care. And that's uh and that's really I think we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. Yeah. But what like if you license the Backstreet Boys, the Backstreet Boys are not going to get up and say, "Hey, check out this MOBA that we're in by DJ Marco." Okay. Right, they're they're not going to do that, um, and that's one of the reasons the license is not attractive. If I license Darkstalkers, there's no way that an ad for my game is going to come out in the next Darkstalkers game because there is no next Darkstalkers game. Mm. Right. So when you when you're building your brand to to share, you want to make sure that the core product is supported and that the core products or your other social media's you know social presences, etc can be leveraged to share the um the new products that you're creating mm. and and that um you know and to to and that fans are still watching and still listening even if there's not a new core release on the horizon yeah i guess i have to bring it up King, King, kingdom hearts was kind of mm, like that mm, i guess uh kingdom hearts something yeah. about kingdom hearts kingdom hearts uh, yep, yep. Yep, yep, yep kingdom hearts is is a great uh is a great example of a brand that has extensive merchandising Right? Yeah, um, and an extensive line of core products, and when you get a Kingdom Hearts game, it definitely feels like a Kingdom Hearts game. You know, you know it is big feet, incomprehensible plots, and something about love, friendship, darkness, heart. Yes, yeah. this is why we said Talisman is going to be such a great crossover for Kingdom Hearts. Oh my Hearts. gosh, it's true, it's true. Uh, I'm I'm really excited for Talisman Kingdom Hearts because I think that Talisman is a game that that accurately represent that accurately reproduces the experience of playing Kingdom Hearts on a table, which is. It's absolute nonsense, right? Yeah. Pretty much. Like you you roll you roll dice, you move around and stuff happens to you until until you get to the big bad. Sounds like Kingdom Hearts um, to me. It sounds like you It's it's gonna be pretty immersive. You, you mash that. X, you um, kill some heartless, you reach a big bad. I mean like it's it's not wrong. So Brad, what's right, the benefit? We should we should stop throwing shade unless the in case the Kingdom Hearts developers are listening to this and they decide not to give me an exceed license for Sora. Exceed Kingdom Hearts. Tell us if you'd like Exceed Kingdom Hearts. That'd be hilarious. Imagine, imagine having to play Exceed as Winnie the Pooh. That would be great if you really think about it in your heart of hearts. Yeah. Guess, guess which Kingdom Hearts characters can't be licensed. It's every Disney character. That's true. Guess which Kingdom Hearts characters aren't relevant to the plot. It's every Disney character. 
Uh, and now you start to see a little bit of why the you know the Disney characters are downplayed and the Square characters are upplayed. Yeah, and why they keep making new or characters. The original, the original characters, rather. Because Sephiroth and Cloud are also not part of the Kingdom Hearts license and can't be sold. But Sora and Kyrie and Riku and Keyblades and etc. Those can all be sold. Yep. This explains why there are six Soras. Because <laughs> they couldn't afford to make, uh, to, to do the, the Square or the Disney characters. So they were like, let's just make more Soras. But anyway, so we should talk a little bit about, you know, benefits and the pitfalls of licensing. Sure. So so what, right. what benefits me? I mean, I know for a fact that it's about it's about reach, right? Or like it's about reach. And there's an important thing to understand about that because a branded product does not reach the sum of two audiences. It reaches the intersection of two audiences. So when you look at a product like Marvel versus Capcom, um, that's a great that's a great crossover. But a product like say Mortal Kombat and uh, Frozen would not be a great crossover. Think about this, right? If we if we if we accept that to be true, that the intersection that it's the intersection of the audiences as opposed to some of them, why not just make original products over and over and over again? Why ever do a licensed product? Yeah, why? So the answer to that is that you you have to assume there is an undiscovered portion of your audience in the intersecting audience or in the, the crossover audience. Mm. So with Marvel vs. Capcom, we assume that some number of Marvel readers will like fighting games if they discover them. And we assume that some number of, uh, of fighting game folk. Capcom players, yeah. yeah, will like comic books if they're exposed to them. And I think a lot of people who played Street Fighter uh, got into Marvel, and a lot of people who read comic books got into fighting games from Marvel vs. Capcom because there is a real overlap with those audiences. I see. So, and so that's a huge benefit of working with another brand. Okay. So, Brad, uh, so when we're talking about not the sum but the intersection. Really, what you're saying is, it's a good way to get your thing to more people. But if they're not the type of people who would like it anyway, then that's it's pointless, right? Like, there's no point in licensing Frozen for Mortal Kombat because the kids who love Frozen wouldn't like Mortal Kombat, and the serious people who love Mortal Kombat wouldn't want to watch Frozen. Yeah, they're not going to want to play against Elsa online. Are you sure, though? Uh, that's not that's not the experience you sign up for when you play Mortal Kombat. Let Combat, it go. Right? That's her fin- That's her. That's her <laughs> fatality. It's let it go. Let it go. And the entire music. And, then, and it's and and then it's, it drops your skull. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, like that's, that. that's Mortal Kombat. <laughs> but but the so the point is to meet new people, and so you want to to get into a product that matches. So we talked earlier, like. I probably wouldn't want to make a World of Indians backpack. I'd probably want to make a World of Indians gamer lifestyle, like, you know, carrying case or deck box or something. Or So you want to pick products that make sense. Mm. I think it all, it all boils down to the... We haven't mentioned the one big benefit that people always say when they when people or licenses cross over is money, baby. Give me some scratch. If you do them well, then they can be a good source of revenue, which can fund your creative endeavors. So... The question you have to ask is how much of my market overlaps with this this other brand if you're merchandising and and how many of my fans is this product going to bring joy to mm-hmm. if you're a, a brand owner? And when those two questions converge, that's when you get great licensed products. So like Exceed Street Fighter. Yeah, like Exceed Street Fighter. That's a, that's a, a perfect one because there are a lot of fighting game fans that probably would like a fighting card game. And there are a lot of fighting card game fans that will probably like Street Fighter. 
Um, I would say that we definitely got the better end of that of deal. <laughs> um, Street Fighter audience is, is a lot bigger than ours, and so it's, there's a fairly good confidence that um, that we are going to meet more people. Yeah. So we're the merchandiser in that case, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. And then Street Fighter, they're licensing to us. You know, They're assuming that we're going to make a certain sales threshold and that the fans of Street Fighter, who also like card games, are going to like Street Fighter even more once they play it in card game form. Yeah. So this is a product that brings joy to the Street Fighter players. Yeah, and it provides them with a thing that they haven't had, right? Wherein it's an, a way to play Street Fighter without a TV or a PlayStation or an Xbox, mm-hmm. right? And and that yeah. and that allows them to quote unquote saturate their market even more. And it allows you to basically Street Fighter all the time whenever you want, right? Like, and at the end of the day, like yeah, it makes it's it's good if it's it integrates Street Fighter further into your life. Exactly. Which is is what any branded product look. And that's what customers are looking for when they see this product on the shelf. They're like, how can I experience this in a different way? Yeah. Brad, but we've talked about how great licensing is and merchandising and all this stuff, especially because, you know, we've been exploring that option ourselves, right? And not just licensing other stuff, licensing Indians to other people as well, right? Mm-hmm. But Brad. Yeah. What are the dangers? What is what is dangerous out there? Take this advice. It's very important that your brands do match in terms of character and not just in terms of your market needs, right? Like, sure, we want to sell brands. Uh, we just want to sell our license to other companies. But can you imagine, like, if, say, uh, the guys that made Sushi Go bought the license to World of Indians, what would they even do with it? Um, you like you can't really make a Indian sushi go experience. Sushi Indians. Uh, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Marco. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. It's it's not just about audience overlap. You can't just go, you like board games, I like board games, let's do this. But then those two board games are like Love Letter and then the other one is Twilight Imperium. Right? Like Right. It doesn't always make sense. And it, it needs to make sense. They need to overlap. They need to find that convergence of um you know, between the licensor and the merchandiser. Yeah. And you have to get that right um, in terms of character. And, um, you know, Red Rising is a great example of this because uh, we as Little Night Games brought a certain character to the deal and the Red Horizon artwork didn't necessarily support our character. And that's why it was jarring for a lot of folks when they first played Exceed Red Horizon. Yeah. So it's one reason that we are paying a lot more attention to character because Back when I signed that, I was like, oh, this is a deal that's on the table that meets our needs uh, for our market. So let's do it. And we did it. And now I think, you know, we could have uh, played that better. You know, even if we did decide to go along with it, we could have used different characters. We could have used different artwork. We could have made our presentation uh, of the brand more in sync with us. And this is kind of the, you know, Disney buys Marvel sort of thing. Like, you can get a much more cohesive Marvel when you have a smart Disney behind yeah. you. Your character still has to match even if you adjust the other IP to compensate, right? So, for example, this is the mm-hmm. case of what happened with uh, Mortal Kombat versus DC, where because DC was integrated into Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat had to, quote-unquote, dumb itself down or adjust itself to DC's rating of teen, right? So, mm-hmm. so be- because yeah. of that, like... A lot of Mortal Kombat's audience was super alienated because they were like, wait, so you're telling me there's no blood and gore and ripping people's heads off? Then what's the point? <laughs> this, Yeah, it's not even Mortal Kombat. That's the entire identity of the brand. Yeah, so like, what, what's the point? So th- that could be a danger as well. Like, it's not just about adjusting things to your brand. It's also understanding that some brands are just incompatible because adjusting them ruins their very core essence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, another thing to think about too is the opportunity cost. You can partner with anyone, but you can only partner with so many uh, people. You only have so much time for production, so much energy to create works and so many release slots in your schedule. And so there's an opportunity cost whenever you are working with a brand. You want to make sure that you're working with one that makes sense. And you want to make sure that you're working with the best one that makes sense. So if you partner, um, especially if you partner with a weak brand, you might even lose customers because if I make, say, um, an original series of Exceed, then I, you know, then I, I can just sell it as an original series. People are like, fine, it's cool. It's original. I'll, I'll take it. And some amount of people do that. But if I partner with a brand that is actively uh, weak or weaker than uh, Level 99 Games, then people will see that on the shelf and they'll say, I don't know what that is, but clearly I'm supposed to if I buy this product, so I won't. Mm. And so that's why it makes a lot, it's very important, the intersection be larger than just doing something on your own, which is a tall order, but is worth considering. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to spend a lot of dollars, time, money, resources, power, whatever on this. So it's it's good to think about it, right? Like, like don't just go into yeah. haphazardly. Like, just because – and it's also very important to consider that just because you like something and you think it's a great idea as the designer or owner of your game production company, it doesn't mean your audience will love it, right? Like – like yeah absolutely yeah i mean for for me you can make an entire exceed season on pogs and i'd be into that but i don't think our fans would be yeah probably not um or say we made an an, a uh an exceed character for corona no basket which which you oh gosh right i imagine that a large portion of our audience would be like "Eh, i don't know uh i don't think i'll get that compared to the, the people that bought uh say you know, imaging one off for for Seventh Cross because we, you know, they know it's an original thing and they don't have to go into it with any context. But if you see that there's a context to a product and you don't have that context, it's very difficult to buy it. You have to get into the anime first, and then I can go buy the product. So you're you're kind of cutting out all that audience that is not attached to the core product. Already. I've definitely felt this way about anything related to Game of Thrones, where like there's a Game mm-hmm. of Thrones product or game that I find to be very interesting mechanically, but it's like I can't appreciate this unless I watch Game of Thrones, and I've already missed like what five seasons, and I'm not gonna watch five seasons just to play a board game. So yeah, well, the Game of Thrones board game is actually really good in that you don't have to know a whole lot to like. I that was actually my first introduction to the scene. Oh, interesting. Uh, to the to the the to Game of Thrones, and I actually got my copy of the board game signed by Martin. Wow, uh, which is is one of my treasures. But yeah, that was my first introduction to it, and I think that's uh, you know that's a great benefit is that a really good product spinoff product can expand the brand. Yeah, and you only get that when you partner with a really top tier company like fantasy flight or hopefully level 99 yeah. games I like to think. okay but i but uh, that also means the <laughs> reverse right that means if you partner with a really bad merchandiser or licensor or something it reflects badly on you so for example if disney licensed out a frozen toy that inevitably like what exploded and then a bunch of kids got hurt that reflects badly on disney even if it's not quote unquote directly their fault because it's the manufacturer's fault yeah, people are, are buying this product because they want to feel the positive feeling that they felt when they experienced the original source material. And if that feeling is not delivered, or if that feeling is somehow subverted or betrayed, then it can ruin the entire series for somebody. Yeah. And um, 
for example, if you if you've ever watched, say, a TV show where the tone shifted really dramatically, or you've ever read a book series where like the second book in the series was just not of the same genre as the first one, mm. uh, then you feel this this dissonance, this disconnect, and it really is upsetting and it can ruin a series for you. It can ruin the it can actually ruin the brand. Yeah, like what happened with Harry Potter. Yeah. But that that is true. Like Harry Potter is a great example because a lot of people after they finished the seventh book of Harry Potter, they went out to buy Tales of Beetle the Bard, which is not a Harry Potter book, but it was marketed under the same license. Yeah. And when people read that book, they did not get the same feeling that a full Harry Potter book gave them. And so they reacted really negative to, to it. Yeah. And you can see it in the Harry Potter movies as well, that Fantastic Beasts is just not Harry Potter 8. Yeah. And it was never marketed that way. But at the same time, a lot of people expected that. And that is a real danger to the franchise. Yeah, and don't, don't forget Cursed Child, which isn't even a book or a movie. It's literally a stage play. So it's like entirely different at this point. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I, I have to say, I admire them for trying these new things. At the same time, uh, Harry Potter is so central to the identity of that universe that any product without him is going to be a really hard sell. Yeah. I mean, it's called Harry Potter, for goodness sake. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's, his, it's his name, yeah. Whereas, like, X-Men, you can swap men, members of the team in and out. You know, you can get rid of basically any one X-Men, and it's still X-Men. Yeah, so long as you have a few uh, of them, right? You could even, yeah, you could even go generation forward and take switch the entire team, and it's still X-Men, because the premise is not tied to the, the character. Yeah, it's not like Wolverine, the show, even though sometimes it can feel that way. But anyway, we're yammering on, but that is pretty much what we have what I have to say about licensing. Hey Brad, before we end this episode, I want to ask. So, I'm not saying that you should reveal anything. I'm saying like if you had to license out something for level 99 games, what would it be? Would it be the World of Indians? Would it be Seventh Cross? Would it be like what would you what would be the dream? What would be the dream scenario? Well, here? I certainly think that only the World of Indians is is in a state where I could license okay. it. Okay. For me, it would be really cool to do a World of Indians say, comic book or video game that is not just BattleCon online or um, that kind of thing, but a real like crossover with another game. Like if like Hikaru appeared in Street Fighter, that would be really cool for me. Okay. Uh, you know, so there's there's the dream. I will license World of Indians to Capcom, and we'll see a. World of Indians crossover in Street Fighter Five. That would be super rad. You know what my dream scenario would be? <laughs> Tell punch me. box. I already told you earlier. Punch punch box. box. Give me the. In- Is this like box peak, but with punching instead of peeking? No, no. Give give me the in. Give me the Indians lunchbox that you have to punch to get the food. Like, do it, Brad. Like it's like I I'm just a huge right, we're done. fan we're of done those here. weird weird eighties nineties right. products. Thank you, thank you, thank you, World of Indians. Thank you, and good night. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the New Level Cap Podcast. I've been your host, Mark DeSantos, also known as Mechanic Green. With me has been my amazing co-host, who I, I feel as a, is an angel for dealing with my random stuff every week. It certainly is. Uh, but I've been Brad Talt, the founder of Level 99 Games. Yeah. And it's been great to chat with you today. Uh, it was, it's been great. If you love it, share it with a friend. If you hate it, share it with an enemy. Don't forget your special action. And thank you, World of Indians. Thank you. And license. Good night. And happy gaming. Trademark. The new Level Cap podcast is produced by Level 99 Games. Join us next Wednesday for more design talk and shenanigans. Thank you for listening.